This episode is brought to you by Veridesk. Veridesk makes office furniture simple. Seriously. Everyone probably knows their height adjustable stand-up desk. I use it every day in my video production business. It was really the first step to create a happier, healthier me because I was sitting all the time, losing circulation, and standing up just feels a lot healthier. Today, Veridesk has a full line of furniture and accessories for the office or the classroom, and they make it easy to order, assemble, and change around as you need it. You really got to check them out. Just go to veridesk.com forward slash behind the brand and take a look. Hi, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with author, entrepreneur, thought leader, Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Uh, talk to us a little bit about art and becoming an artist. This is an amazing book and you're telling everyone that they may not know it, but they're an artist. What's that about? Well, you know, writers, we work with words. And sometimes we make up words like purple cow, and sometimes we have to repurpose them. I needed a word to describe what human beings do when they act like humans, not small machines. What we do when we are out there putting our stamp on something, something that might not work. And most of all, I needed a word to describe the generosity and human connection that this kind of work makes. So I called it art, because we can agree that a playwright is making art and that Jackson Pollock was making art. Um, but it's also art when you go to a restaurant and they serve you a dish made with care just for you. And it's also art when your insurance broker says, you know, there's a guy down the street who can sell you something better than I can. Let me go walk you over there and I'll introduce you to him. That is not in the rule book. It's human. It's something new and fresh. And so what my work has been about for the last little while is the distinction between the mechanics of doing what other people tell you to, the mechanics of the dummy's guide, the mechanics of uh, this is what I do all day. How do I do it faster and cheaper? I'm not interested in that. Right. To how do we become artists? Because when we were four, all of us painted a finger painting that had never been painted before. When we were seven, we told a joke that had never been told before. When we were nine, we walked up to someone and showed them we cared about them. And then over time, it gets burnt out of us, and I want to bring that back. And we start asking for a roadmap too, don't we? Oh yeah, we got brainwashed into asking for roadmaps. That that's what the SAT is, of course. Uh, that's what they test you for in school. That someone who's good in school is actually someone who's good at following maps. Uh, then we get to work, particularly at a bigger organization, and it's not them saying figure it out, use your best judgment. It's them saying look on page thirty-seven and do what it says. That map reading mindset is putting us into a real bind now. And I think we need to figure out how to train our kids and train ourselves instead of looking for a map to look for a compass. And instead of asking for directions, giving directions. And that's the thing about art, right? It's organic. And unless it's paint by numbers, it's often undefined. And it might not work. And it might go in a totally different direction from where you started, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a village in China called Dauphin where they paint one-third of all the oil paintings in the world every day. This is probably from there. <laughs> over and over and over again, as fast as they can. That's right. not art, that's painting. Painting isn't worth very much. Art is worth a lot. Sometimes when people hear this, they recoil in fear because it's so scary and alien. But most people who hear it, you can hear the sigh of relief because it's what they've wanted all along. What yeah. they've wanted all along is for someone to trust them enough to say, go, go make something. 
Have you had any um, backlash from the artists? Because I personally... You, you mean know, the painters? <laughs> I guess. People who call themselves artists, because you're redefining art, the term, you're expanding it, of course, and applying it to not just that medium, but life in general. I'm just curious whether you got any you know, backlash it, or not. That's interesting. First of all, I'm not redefining art. This is what art has always been. Art was always for amateurs until Andy Warhol. You know, Vincent van Gogh had never had any illusions that he was going to become a famous rich artist because there weren't famous rich artists. You became famous and rich, and then you became an artist, not the other way around. Yeah. So uh, the other thing is that painters are angry at everybody, right? That the people who are toiling in the, the gutters of banal poetry are angry at everybody. But true artists... They're too busy to be angry at someone who's using a word in a way that they don't like. That the internet is filled with people who are using this opportunity to make the best thing they can, yeah. and filled with people who got nothing better to do but whine about how somebody uses a word. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, talk to me about the comfort zone, because you mentioned this in the book a lot, and I thought it was a great distinction um, of the safety zone and the comfort zone. Talk sure. about that a little bit. So all creatures need a, a shortcut, because we don't have time to reevaluate the safety of everything. So if you take uh, a mouse and put it on the middle of the floor in the light, it will run away. It won't say, oh, I'm in a Disney movie, this is great. It will just run away right. because it's uncomfortable there, because it's unsafe there. And so in order to succeed, organisms, particularly humans, have to build a comfort zone that matches the safety zone. So they don't have to worry about whether it's safe, they just worry about if it's comfortable. Because if it's comfortable, they're fine. If it's not comfortable, they run away. And I came to this uh, realization because I was talking to a friend, really talented, and she was looking for a job. And I brainstormed 20 different things that she could do to get on the radar of the places that deserved her. And she said, you know, Seth, that's not really in my comfort zone. Because the last time she looked for a job was 25 years ago, and there was a method. So in her mind, comfort and safe were the same thing. Gotcha. What I said to her is, you know what? Your comfort zone isn't working because you only want to do things that feel safe, and they're not safe. They're dangerous. They're going to leave you unemployed. Yeah. You're going to have to do this other stuff that feels uncomfortable, but is actually safe. So the safest thing you can do is take a risk, or what feels like a risk. And the riskiest thing you can do is play it safe. That it used to be, you know, 10,000 people went to Ford Motor Company one day to do their job like they did the day before, and they all got fired on the same day because they had played it safe, they thought. But what they had really done is played it comfortable. It wasn't their fault they got fired. It was the idiot bosses who made ugly cars that screwed up, but they got fired. What would have happened in 1987 if the UAW had gone on strike, not for more wages, but to insist that Ford make better looking, better designed cars? Think about how that would have completely changed the course of automotive history and saved the jobs of all of those people. Right. But that wasn't the mindset. That didn't feel comfortable, so they didn't do it. So the message is, if you're standing still, the world is moving, you're actually losing ground. Yeah, and if yeah. you're not, you know, there's two kinds of labor. There's physical labor, which we did for a really long time, and then there's emotional labor. And that's what most of us get paid for, right? If you don't have calluses on your hands and you don't have dirt on your jeans, you're getting paid for emotional labor. And instead of hiding from it, I think we need to embrace it. If what you did today wasn't hard, then you probably didn't create enough value because you probably didn't expose yourself to enough risk and fear because that's what we're paid for. We're not paid to fill in TPS reports because we don't need those anymore. That if you have a job where someone is telling you exactly what to do,
they can find someone cheaper than you to do it. Right. You talked in the book a lot about becoming more personal. Um, you say that we need to bring more humanity back into the work that we do, and that's, about, that's a part of being an artist. But how do we get more personal when HR department doesn't want anything to do with that? Right. Or the, the attorneys? Well, let's be clear, first of all, about personal. I don't need to know how many kids you have, and I de don't need to know, you know, this transparency can be taken way too far beyond what we need. I don't know anything about Pablo Picasso's life. I don't know anything about, you know, Edward Albee's life. I don't need to. All I need to know is that when they made their art, they opened themselves up because they put an emotion on the table. Now, if you work in an organization that insists on keeping you in a tiny replaceable box, you have to make a choice about whether you have a future there or not. Because one, organizations like that aren't going to continue to thrive. And two, you're probably not going to reach the next level there because they'll just find someone else to put in your slot. So the example that's pretty simple is you know, three years ago, the difference between Apple and Dell is no one could blame Michael Dell for the products he was making. They were obvious. They were cheap and they were plentiful. Right. Whereas Apple would come out with something and someone would say, I hate that. <laughs> that's personal. It's personal to say, here, I made this, and for someone else to say, I hate that. We're too focused on how do I avoid criticism and not focused enough on how do I make a difference. So you think that's the stumbling block? You think that's where people are getting stuck because they're not willing to be vulnerable, to take a risk? Is that what this is about? Yeah, so Brene Brown has spoken about this more eloquently than I, but vulnerability means putting something into the world and being willing to let the world respond or react. If you come out with something that's polished and, and has no edges on it and you can say the committee made this, it's not my fault, there's no vulnerability there, right? Whereas if, you know, it, it's sort of, I don't use a lot of sports analogies, but the difference between Vince Lombardi and the typical corporate football coach today, win and lose, Vince Lombardi's on the hook. Today it's a system. It's a process. We, you know, it's it's, it's money ball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, that's not personal. There's no vulnerability there. The the highs aren't as high and the lows aren't as low. In a world where we can connect to whomever we want, why would we connect to someone who is boring and selfish? We're going to connect to people who are interesting, walking the tightrope, and generous. I kind of feel um, maybe just because I relate with this that it, it kind of takes one to know one. And so I want to maybe get a little bit personal with you and talk about some of this, uh, talk more about vulnerability, because it's, it's not easy. And, and maybe uh, I'm overgeneralizing, but generally I think for men, um, it's difficult to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there. I mean, we take risks. Sure, you know, we soldier through and do whatever, right. uh, get bloody and beat up, but uh, to show our sensitive side, uh, and Brene Brown talks a lot about this too, where she says, it's a, it's seen as a sign of weakness. So, did you ever have a time where you struggled with this, the being vulnerable? Um, I, I, talk oh, to us about well, that. Well, yeah, I think it's something I deal with every single day and have for a really long time. That part of what happens if you're going to be an entrepreneur or even a freelancer, someone dancing on the edge, is you're paying attention to the audience. You want to know if you're making a sale. You want to know if it's working. You're not just phoning it in. Right. So, you know, in the old days, it was one phone call a day could make or break your day. 
Now it's one email every 10 seconds could make or break your day, right? So you have to decide first, are you open to letting the world have at your work? Yeah. Well, 17 books in, I think I am. 4,800 blog posts in, I'm sort of hooked on this. Yeah. Then the question is, what are you going to do with it when it comes back? Because it does come back. You touch people and they touch you back. So I have no comments on my blog. I don't read my reviews on Amazon. And the reason is self-preservation. <laughs> it has nothing to do with vulnerability because I've put it into the world. Yeah. But I realized I had never met an author who said, you know, Seth, I read all my one-star reviews on Amazon and now my writing is a lot better. Right? Yeah. That's just not what happens. Yeah. So those don't exist. If someone sends me an anonymous email, I'm going to delete it. But if someone, and there's thousands of people who I have some sort of digital connection with, has some feedback on something I've done, I'm going to listen to it and I'm open to it and there's an exchange that goes on. And more important, millions of people are talking to each other about my work. You have to be open to that. You have to be ready for that to happen. I am not saying you need to become some magical little echo chamber, and that's why I don't use Twitter, because I realized if I got sucked into Twitter, it's like playing tennis with 150 people at a time. You yeah. hit the ball once and then a whole bunch of balls come back. You'll never be able to keep up with that. Yeah. So part of this discipline is not becoming J.D. Salinger and living isolated in a cabin, but figuring out how to be in the world, learn enough from the world that your stuff gets better, but continue to make things, continue to put these ideas into the world. I, I want to add one last thing on yeah. that topic because it, it's something I've thought about a lot. I was really uh, fortunate uh, before his illness and then when he passed away, uh, I got to be on stage once with Zig Ziglar, one of my teachers. And it was 10,000, 12,000 people in a, actually it's more than that, in a big stadium in Milwaukee. And backstage I said, so tell me Zig, what do you do about that guy in the third row who's asleep? Like, because I'm standing up there and I've flown halfway across the country and I've practiced this thing and that guy, he's asleep. <laughs> or he's, he's, he's not paying attention. Yeah. I said, and, and Zig, I'm, I'm giving him everything I've got. I'm aiming all my photons and tachyons at him, and he's just not responding. And I can't do Zig's voice anymore, but Zig turned to me and he said, it's not for him. It's that woman sitting next to him on the edge of her seat, the one who's came a long way to hear you speak, the one who's listening to what you're saying and is going to do something. It's for her. Yeah. Don't take it away from her and give it to this guy, he doesn't deserve it. It's for her. And once we learn to shun the non-believers, once we learn to be comfortable enough to say, it's not for you, then we free ourselves up because no one can make something for everyone. No one. There's no product that everyone wants. So you can either spend all your time trying to get the last person to like you, or you can say, I'm sorry, it's not for you. I'll go talk to these guys instead. It's amazing. The light bulb. I think has gone on for so many people that that's what it's about. I mean, uh, I think you mentioned it in the book too. There's this great example of is it Joshua Bell, who's the uh, violinist, violinist. Yeah. and it's just about playing to the right audience yep. or not. And it's what you challenge us to think about is, uh, you know, if you're not getting the attention that you're looking for, possibly you either a are playing to the wrong audience, or b you're not making good, uh, enough, good stuff. enough stuff. Right. Yeah. And Joshua Bell's a great example. The Washington Post, I think, right, wrote exactly. this up. Uh, in he stood in the subway with a baseball cap on and thousands of people walked by. Nobody cared. Right. And yet, he could pack a concert hall, a few hundred dollars a ticket, right. and it's just amazing the difference. Let's talk about picking yourself. Okay. This is something that I think you've gotten good at, but were you always good at it? 
let's let's maybe unpack it a little bit. Sure. Talk about what it means to pick yourself, and then give us some some personal story. Well, all of us are surrounded by people who can't wait to get picked. Authors used to need to be on Oprah. Uh, Clive Davis's autobiography just came out. What did he do for a living? He picked people. Uh, we want to get picked by the local political party. We want to be picked by our boss. We get picked, which authorizes us to do this art. So I'm just waiting for Poetry Magazine to call me. <laughs> I sent them my, my, my stuff two weeks ago. I don't know where they are. I'm waiting for this job to come in, right? Yeah. And what happened is that these gatekeepers all at once lost their power. If you want to make a record, make a record. Put it on iTunes. Pick yourself. If you want to write, write. Build a blog. Pick yourself. If you want to start a software company, you don't need a permit. You don't need anything. You just start it. And so we see authors and writers and singers and entrepreneurs and physical therapists and anyone who wants to, because we're all now collect one click away from each other, raise their hand and say, I'm in. Here's what I make. Here's what I do. That doesn't mean everyone needs to be self-employed. That's not what I'm saying. You can right. work for a big company and you can organize the weekly lunch book club. Why not? There's no rule against it. Even HR doesn't care if you do that. Send a memo out to 50 people, you meet once a week, and you all read a book together. That idea of picking yourself is available now because communication is so easy. And what frustrates me to no end is, you know, if some people read my blog, and I'll get notes 10, 20, 30, 40 a day saying, pick me, put me on your blog. Now, yeah. I've never done that for anyone. Yeah. I don't make careers. That's yeah. not what I do. But they still are so desperate to be picked. And I'll, I've written a blog post called First Ten. And what the post says is, give your work to 10 people. And if it's good, and they're the right 10 people, they'll tell 10 people, now you have 100. And if it's good, they'll tell 1,000. And once you have 1,000 true fans, you're in, right? Yeah. If the first 10 don't do anything with it, your work's not good enough, or they're the wrong 10 people. Right. So I send this link to the people who say, pick me. And about 80% of the time, I never hear from them again. <laughs> because they don't want to pick themselves. They want the security and the deniability from someone else picking them, right? That if you don't have time to do it right, when are you gonna have time to do it over? That if you got time to be rejected by 400 media outlets, you probably have time to build your own media outlet in the meantime. Right. But we don't wanna do that because it doesn't feel safe. And I love the way you compare post-industrial revolution to where we are now, which is the connection economy. Right. And I wanna talk about that in a minute, but I wanna go back to the reason people are afraid to pick themselves um, I, I think it's because they're afraid to fail. I think that they're probably stuck doing it the same way, you know, status quo, this is the way we've done it for the last 30 years, this is the way we need to keep doing it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, I'm looking here and I don't see Al Roker in the building or Katie Couric. Uh, let me tell you, I did invite Steve Martin tonight. Really? And he declined. He was either doing Saturday Night Live this last week or something else. Um, but I loved the, uh, you know, homage you gave oh, in the yeah. book. Oh yeah, so many cool things there. And but I invited him and he, he declined. Well, it's Next time. He and I don't speak. <laughs> um, anyway, you picked yourself, right? I mean, two really great cameramen sitting here. It's gonna be seen by more people that are gonna see the average local TV show. You did that, you just chose. You didn't have to, but you decided you can. Now, why wouldn't other people do it? Well, it's not fear of failure because if no one sees it, so, no one would know you failed because no one saw it. It's not like you're, everyone's waiting for you to have this giant pratfall. Yeah. It's the fear of fear of failure. What we are afraid of 
is having to admit to ourselves that we did something that didn't work. That we think that that is when the universe will call us out as the fraud that we know we are. That everyone is carrying around this little chip, Steve Martin especially, that they're a fraud. And that to not get the response, it, people aren't going to laugh at you like they did in high school. No, that's not the problem. The problem is in your head you say, see, I told you. Is that where shame starts to play a play? And shame part. is the art killer. Yeah. Shame is what, especially women, girls, use, is used on them, right? To say, how dare you? You know, we come up with words to describe people who, are, who have the hubris to be vulnerable and to make art, and we use shame to undercut all of that. And so this black cloud of shame is at the heart of this. It's the partner of the resistance, Steve Pressfield's great term. And when shame and the resistance get together, you're in trouble. The answer, it turns out, is not to fight it. It's to acknowledge it. It's your compass. For me, when the resistance kicks in and says, you shouldn't do that, that's how I know I'm on the right path. Right. That I look for that feeling, and instead of fleeing or fighting, I listen to it and do it anyway. Yeah. And that is where we're going to make the impact that we deserve to make. You've talked about it before, leaning into the curveball, running at the dog, embracing uncertainty, all these things, completely not intuitive to getting through that kind of thing. Right. Because ordinarily it's a brick wall. You let the words of other people or the applause or the lack of the applause determine your worth or how valuable your project That's is. exactly right. And most people just quit. Yeah, because it seems so comfortable, which we think means safe. And so now there's this bitterness of people who persuaded themselves that the world owed them this stable, risk-free life. And now that the industrial age is going away and it's not being given to them, they think it's someone else's fault. Well, no, they just didn't read the manual because the manual has been pretty clear for a few years, which says, we're not going to keep doing that. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I sort of understand why people would feel that way because the rules of the game have changed. Sure. I get it. You know, go to college, get a graduate degree, get a fantastic job, you're done, you're set. Right. And that's all gone. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And... But, you know, so some of the people who are whining about it, you know, people in the newspaper industry, what? You just heard? <laughs> I'm not buying this. You're in the newspaper industry. You've been hearing about it for 14 years. The first time I spoke to the newspaper publishers of America was 14 years ago. Yeah. If you were in the room, you heard it, and then you've seen it, and then you saw Craigslist, and then you saw this, and you saw that. And for you to be sitting here whining that too many people are on BuzzFeed and not enough people are reading your paper that you delivered to their house in a truck? Yeah. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. So it's selective listening or denial. Yeah, because all creatures, particularly humans, will do almost anything to avoid fear. And so when someone shows up, you know, the, the magic of the Industrial Revolution is the Henry Fords of the world showed up and they said, you don't have to be afraid. You merely have to do what I say. Yeah. I will take responsibility and then I will make you rich. That was a really cool deal. And generations gave up their spark in exchange for richness. But now the New Deal shows up and it says, you have to be scared out of your mind. You have to feel like you're risking everything. And then some of you will get rich. But all of you will actually have a better life because you're going to be human, not cogs in a machine. So how do we get organizations to change? I mean, does it start with us? Is that what it's about? Or is it about educating 
the people who are in charge? Because the people who are in charge are the ones that are yeah. pointing the fingers and laughing exactly. and sure. trying to shame us. How so do we so fix here's that? the thing. Um, you needed people in charge if you wanted to build a giant new factory to make a new kind of chemical or a new kind of bottle. You couldn't innovate without the big factory. Yeah. The connection economy rewards little things, little connections, little followings. So that if a programmer has 2,000 people who read her blog and she's good, she doesn't need her company anymore. If she gets laid off, she'll get 10 job offers before tomorrow because she is connected to people who trust her. Right? So one by one, as individuals build these webs of connection and trust, the guys on top have way less power than they used to. And that's going to force them to start to innovate. And we see that starting to happen in Hollywood. And we it already happened to the music business. It's happened to the insurance business and the shoe business. You know, Tony Shea built a billion-dollar shoe store. And he did it one bit of trust at a time. Yeah. No fancy buildings, no authority, just one person who trusted him and told another person. I love the way you talk about trust and attention as currency. And that's part of the new connected economy. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Because there's a race to the bottom to make things cheaper. But if you look at the prices at Walmart, you know, they have to level off because soon they'll have to pay you to buy stuff otherwise. <laughs> so as that stuff levels off, I can't grab a huge amount of market share by being 10 cents cheaper. Yeah. It's just not worth it. So how am I going to grow? I'm going to grow by being 10 cents more trusted, not by being 10 cents less expensive. I think that's an amazing bit of advice for entrepreneurs, people who are starting their own company. And I think it's subtle, so I want to I wanna underscore it. Because the mindset is, I need critical mass. You know, I need gazillion whatever, yeah. right? And you're saying the connected economy, no. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it depends, I guess. I mean, if you're Facebook, then you do need critical mass. But you don't need it for most of everything else. Well, please understand, Facebook ended up being worth a billion dollars when they only had two million members, yeah. right? That's, what, one out of every 3,000 people on the planet. That's not critical mass. That's not how many people drink Coke. It's this tiny, tiny number. Yeah. Because what the investors saw is it led to trust. And, you know, in today's news, we see that that, that, that app Mailbox just got acquired by a company called Dropbox before they earned a dollar in revenue. Right. So what did they have? Anyone could have copied their design. What they had was the ability to bring something to the market that people would trust with their most precious digital information, their email, and wait in line for weeks to get a hand on, right? So they demonstrated that they could do it. For most people, for a chiropractor, it's 100 people, right? For somebody who's selling insurance, it's 1,000 people who truly yeah. trust you. So the question I would ask the entrepreneur, the freelancer, the consultant, the person who works at a big company is, do more people trust you and pay attention to you today than six months ago? Yeah. And what are you going to do between now and six months from now that's going to radically change the number of people and how deeply they pay attention and trust you? Yeah. Because if all they're doing is tolerating you, if the only level of attention you have is you own a piece of real estate and they have to walk past your office, it doesn't count. Right? That, you know, there, there's a, a financial broker I know in, in California, not far from here, and he makes a great living with clients all over the world. Not because they've met him, not because they've been into his building, but because he acts in a way that makes people say to other people, I trust this guy. Yeah. You wrote uh, just recently in a blog post, I loved it. Maybe you can um, 
elaborate a little bit on picking your clients. So oftentimes we make the product, we rush out to market, we hope to sell it, but you kind of flip the script. Explain that. Yeah, so you know, you first crossed my path a few years ago and you told me that you were leading a tribe in Southern California of how many people? 8,000? We have 15,000 now. 15,000, but at yeah. the time it was 5,000. Yeah. Well, that group of people defines what you do all day. That group of people defines what you're going to do next because you're not looking for new customers for your products, you're looking for new products for your customers, which is a big mind shift, right? Well, if you end up having 80 angry litigators as your clients, <laughs> please ex expect that your life's going to be miserable yeah. and that your business isn't going to grow. On the other hand, you know, if you look at like the Walt Disney Corporation, who are their customers? They pick them. Well, if they're you know, frustrated that four-year-olds have short attention spans and throw tantrums, well, it's their fault. They picked four-year-olds. Yeah. So you get to pick. You don't say, I have this great product. Who can I push it on? You say, which group of people are open to being connected, are open to being led, are open to being uh, worked with to create art? Those people will be my customers. I pick you. Now let's work together to make a business out of that. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that. It comes, it's all pre-marketing. It's all pre-everything exactly. else. I love that. Um, so Icarus Deception is an interesting title. Um, it's a metaphor, obviously. Talk a little bit about Icarus and some of the myths that are out there. And then let's talk about Kamiwaza. Great. Okay. So um, myths are true. They're true, not literally, but we made them up because they talk about our best selves. Yeah. I love the fact that you referenced Joseph Campbell, by the way, personal favorite. Right. You know, yeah. Campbell's stuff is, is really extraordinary. To, to You know, the same stories keep coming up over and over. Yeah, the hero's time. journey. Of exactly. So, you know, the reason that we celebrate Thomas Edison is because, you know, the, the myth we tell about Thomas Edison is the person we would like to become at some point. Right? Yeah. Well, the myth of Icarus, which is thousands of years old, said the following, Daedalus, his dad, was banished to an island for crossing one of the gods. And uh, Icarus was there with him, and they wanted to escape. So Daedalus fashioned, they always use the word fashioned, wings for the two of them, and then affixed, they always say affixed, them to their back with wax. At this point, the, the myths diverge. If you read the myth today, or in 1950 or 1910, it says, Daedalus said to Icarus, do not fly too close to the sun, or the wax will melt and you will die. Icarus disobeyed his father and perished. Well, what's the lesson? The lesson is, listen to your dad, don't have a lot of chutzpah, do what you're told, don't fly too close to the sun, hubris is a bad thing. Right. That's actually not what the myth used to say. In 1820 and 1720 and 1020 and a thousand years before that, the myth said what I just said, and then Daedalus said, more important, my son, do not fly too low. Because if you fly too low, the mist and the waves will weigh down your wings and you will surely perish. And I wrote this book because I think we're flying too low. I think we need a lot more hubris, a lot less obedience, and a lot uh, more awareness that this revolution was just handed to us. And if all we're using it for is, you know, to put up silly pictures of cats and the Pope, <laughs> we're wasting it. So you're encouraging people to create a ruckus. Exactly. Because, you know, there's a difference between throwing rocks and making a ruckus. You're making a ruckus in the service of something worthwhile, in the service of something generous. That 
it feels way more risky to you than it does to everybody else. But that if you do it in the small, you'll get good enough to do it in the medium and then in the large. And that's where the next innovation is going to come from. And it is about, I want to talk more about thinking like an artist because we, we sort of define what an artist is. But thinking like an artist then is, is trying stuff that may not work. It's starting someplace and ending up in a completely different place and not worrying about what the world says or how much applause or even money you get, right, if, it's, if you feel like it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I, in a few places in the book I try to unpack it a little bit, but one of the things um, that artists have talked about through the years is you must first start with the blank slate, which is it's all on the table. The other thing you have to do is learn how to see, meaning if Jackson Pollock had lived 200 years earlier, he wouldn't have painted the way he painted. And if he had lived 200 years later, he wouldn't have painted at all. That it wasn't that he, had, in his DNA, he needed to paint like that. It wasn't that Van Gogh had in his DNA that he needed to be a painter. Instead, they just decided to see what was around them and go one step further, maybe two. But not three. If you go three steps further, you're not making anything that anyone wants. One step, two steps, that's where, the, that's where art lives. But you can't do it unless you see. And training yourself to see and not censor the thoughts that are coming to you, that's critical. And then the third piece is you have to learn how to make. You actually have to have the skills to do something that matches your vision. And all too often, we fall down on one or two or all three of those steps because we're in such a hurry, we fall in love with ourselves that we put out a piece of crap and we say, isn't this great? No, actually, you might have thought something, but you didn't know how to make it. Yeah. And that's the dilemma we're having right now because it's never been as easy to start a company, never been as easy to get up a video. Yep. And now everyone has a soapbox, right? Correct. So in my mind, quality is the new social proof. Right. You know, like that's what's going to dictate what gets noticed, what gets attention, what gets trust, is if it's good enough for those people, if they love it, right? That's right. You have to, it goes beyond love to feel compelled to tell someone about it before you go to bed. That's how good it has to be. And you talk about, uh, you qualify that a little bit by saying it's also got to be personal. You got to be willing to put it all out there to be able to accept the criticisms, to be able to uh, accept the fact that it may not work, right? Well, it depends on where you are in the cycle. You know, if I look at someone, uh, a rock group that's paid their dues, like Indigo Girls. You know, so Indigo Girls has 25,000 true fans. Every time they put something in the world, they can sell 25,000 copies, yeah. right? Uh, Amanda F. Palmer, same thing. So Amanda doesn't have to crucify herself every time now because that group, that tribe, she knows what they're going to like and what they're not going to like. Yeah. And, and I'm the same thing happened to me. Three or four books ago, I stopped trying to get new readers. I said, I know how to get new readers. I hate getting new readers. <laughs> I don't want to dumb down my work to get masses of people to want to look at it. I right. mean, if I put up a blog post tomorrow that was a list of 17 numbered ways to have something happen, it would go wild on Twitter because you, you, you figure out how to do that. Yeah. But I don't want new readers. I want to take care of the readers I've got. So for me, writing a book now isn't about how do I expose myself to a stranger and get kicked in the teeth. It's how do I take people who have trusted me and take them further than they're comfortable with. Not a lot further, but enough further that both of us feel like we're going somewhere. And that's interesting because it's been a process, right? I mean, it's been a, ref a refining process where you've 
tried stuff, you failed, and you learn what works, and you do that. Right. And that kind of essentially sounds what. Yeah. What's lots happening. of failing. You know, and but the failing is quiet for most people. It's just loud in my head. You know, forty-eight hundred blog posts. More than half of them are below average. <laughs> right. <laughs> Says you. <laughs> Says any mathematician. That's the way the averages work. And so you look at the half that are below average and say, why are they below average? What did I learn from that? Where am I going that works and that doesn't work? And what kind of language am I comfortable with? Or you, know, you give a, a, a thousand or more talks and you discover in that 55 minutes you have alone with a crowd, what will work from an intimacy point of view and what won't? Yeah. Where can you go and where can't you? And so the 10,000 hours rule is legit. What's fascinating and what people don't understand about it is it's possible to ten, spend 10,000 hours to be diverse, 10,000 hours to be good at many things, yeah. right? So what was Johnny Carson good at, actually? He was good at being Johnny Carson. Yeah. It took 10,000 hours to be good at being Johnny Carson, but that's what he ended up with. So it's not just you, you, you need 10,000 hours to learn how to paint a portrait. Right. Maybe it's just 10,000 hours to be you know, a jack of all trades. You've got to work it out. Yeah. You've got to work it out. Let's talk about rejection. Okay. Um, a lot of people get stuck here. You know, we t we touched a little bit on shame, but give some pointers, give some tips about how people can look past the rejection, past the critic. I love in the book you talk um, about how to handle the criticisms and how to handle shame. And you say basically that the words of the critic belong to the critic, and shame it can only stick to you if you accept it, right? Talk yeah. about that a little bit. Well, I want to start with a, a small public service announcement for anyone who's a jerk. Okay. <laughs> which is, some people take some of this learning and use it to become a jerk. That they're going to singles bars and propositioning every person they meet. That they are walking up to people everywhere they go and handing them a business card to sell them their thing that they don't need. And they think that that is the path to becoming a great salesperson. Because it's about numbers. It's a law of attrition. Right? And they think that they're, that, that they're being rejected. In fact, they're not being rejected. A jerk is being rejected because they're not actually even present. They're just putting up this facade. Anytime someone sends me a note uh, and I politely decline, they write back, well, it doesn't hurt to ask. Well, actually, it does hurt to ask. It hurts to ask because I won't view you the same way next time. And it hurts to ask because you didn't take the time to earn the privilege to ask. And right. it hurts to ask because if you had gotten a yes by asking for something else, it would have been easier to get a yes for the next thing next time. <laughs> so this idea that you should just go around getting rejected for fun, kicks, because yeah. it's pretending that you're doing your work, I'm not buying that. But not answer your question. Uh, one of the things I learned, you know, for about eight years I was close to bankruptcy when I was building my book business. And in my first year I got 800 rejection letters in a row, 900 rejection letters in a row. And it would have been really easy to give up. There wasn't a lot of support for what I was doing in the house or out of the house, and it wasn't working. Is there a line drawn in the sand? Like, okay, we're going to give it this much time and then go get, get out and get a real job? Is oh, yeah. I mean, I had my own line, which is if I ran out of money, I was done. And it kept getting closer and closer to running out of money, dancing right on that edge for yeah. a really long time. Uh, and I got very good at bootstrapping, very good at playing it um, so that I wasn't going to run out of money. Because in my head, still to this day, I get to do this thing I love until I run out of money. Yeah. So I'm, you know. And then what? You have to go get a real job? You have or? to go get a job as a bank teller. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the, the symbol for me of the worst possible outcome would be a bank teller. Because I'm not strong enough to dig ditches. 
but it would have been like being in prison for me. Mm -hmm. um, and what I came to uh, understand is that the right kind of no isn't a no. It's a, I learned what doesn't work, or no for now. What it meant to me was the person who I had described my project to either was the wrong person or, given their worldview, didn't hear what I was saying the way I was saying it. Because yeah. I could prove these were good ideas. And some of them, by other people, went on to make millions of dollars. So yeah. I know I was right, right? But that didn't matter. What mattered was they didn't think I was right. And that was, the, it's that transference of belief yeah. that, that, that's so critical. So this idea, and we had a database. At one point I had nine people in my book group. And we had a database in FileMaker Pro. And if something got rejected, there was a thing for yes, and this is when the book is due, or no for now. Right. There was no field for no. Just right. no for now or yes. And we never became obnoxious. We didn't call them back a week later with, to remind them. If we had a new story to tell them about a project, we could go back to them. Right. And that idea of the new story becomes critical when you think about rejection. They didn't reject you. They rejected your story. They rejected the way they believed your story. Right. So if you go back and do a lot of hard work and bring in the more proof, more testimonials, more of this, whatever it is that matches the way they think about the world, you have every right to go back to them and say, based on what I learned from you, we changed it. What do you think of this story? Yeah. I have no doubt that Steve Martin will be sitting in your chair soon. <laughs> he has a new book coming out in April, I think. But Really? A novel? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's... Um, uh, you know, it's not a book. It's a, um, he has an album coming out. You know, he plays banjo right. and all that. So we'll see. No for now. No for now, exactly. So what else could you share? Uh, if someone's got a new startup, you know, and they're just not getting traction, what would you, what advice Well, the biggest give? mistake that people make is they build the wrong size company. Uh, if you say, I got a great idea, but I need to raise $12 million, <laughs> it's not a great idea. Because if you knew how to raise $12 million, you would have done it already. Yeah, or you need a rich uncle. Yeah. Um, if you say... Uh, this is great, but uh, I don't make money until Bill Clinton buys it, and I just got to find out someone who can get me in front of him. Yeah. Bad idea. So for me, I went into the book business because every day, this was years ago, the people in the book business were buying 100 books a, year, a day, every day. Yeah. And they needed me because they didn't have enough books to buy. There's a lot to be said for selling something people want to buy when you're starting. And... You know, so if there's a tourist attraction nearby and you can figure out how to make a t-shirt about that tourist attraction and stand out front, that's a perfectly sized project for someone who doesn't have a lot of money. Yeah. Because you're going to find out in three days if you were right or wrong. And if you were right, you're going to make enough money to hire someone to tell, sell those shirts tomorrow. Yeah. And you can go back to doing what you were doing. But you just learned how to invent a product, create a product, sell a product, make a profit from a product in three days. Start there. Don't say you have this new app that's going to change the world if only 4 million people downloaded it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the scale issue. We yeah. often pick a project of too big a scale because it's safe. Because of course it can't work, so we're covered. And the last thing I'd say about this is I got an email two days ago that got me very upset. And this guy, uh, pe people, sh if you're seeing this, you should not send me an email because it's my addiction, it's a bad habit, I don't want to read any more email. But this guy sent me an email and it said, I believe that everyone is born with one good idea in life and I have mine, I'd like to run it by you. When I get an email like that, if there's an attachment, I instantly delete it. I never look at ideas. Send it to Mark Cuban. Yeah, <laughs> never look at ideas. Okay. But I wrote right back and say, I can't believe you just said that sentence. Because as soon as you say that, you've set yourself up to not being willing to fail. Because it's your only idea. Yeah. 
That's All ridiculous. All the eggs in one basket. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. What you need to say is, everyone has a good idea every hour. This is mine, and if it's wrong, I'll have another one an hour from now, so we'll see. That's a way better way. If you're sitting around saying, I have this great idea, but I can't tell anyone because they'll steal it, it's not a great idea. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot that hang from the rear view. Uh -huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you. No. Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents. Shotgun riders, two buyers, they all liars.